That's Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, please, if you've got a Bible, please have it open on your lap. We're going to be looking at that short but very, very important passage from Mark chapter 16. Um, but only after I've told you a story. Uh, yesterday afternoon, um, I was able to spend some time in front of the TV. It had been a hot and sticky one, a lovely Easter weekend. And to my great joy and delight, I had forgotten, but then encountered Liverpool playing Man City on the TV. Um, it was a remarkable victory at Anfield South, as it's known, which is also known as Wembley. Uh, Sadio Mane played uh, superbly well. But what was interesting to me was, as I've got older, to the ripe old age of 46, or thereabouts, I might be 47, I'm at that age when I can't even remember anymore, what I'm more interested in, increasingly, is people's reactions to what happens on the field of sporting endeavour, whatever sort of field that is, and whatever shape it is. Sometimes people can respond with great joy, whether it's uh, the opposing team when the, the ball goes just wide, and they're thinking, yes, you've missed or whether it's, yes, you've scored, whatever the sport is. But sometimes you have other reactions like this, where you're literally tearing your hair out as Hamilton gets pipped by Verstappen. Dastardly Verstappen and so on. The Brazilian chap, bottom left-hand corner, has not just got the most wonderful hat, but uh, looks completely despondent at what's happening in the game. Top right-hand corner, mouth open to the scar. I can't believe what's happened. Bottom right, head in hands. We've all been there if you follow anything involving England. But if you knew that it was a mighty, easy 3-2 win to Liverpool yesterday and you didn't see the events live, you would know that doesn't tell the whole story. They had a great first half, three super goals, one unfortunately given to them by a Man City goalkeeper. Um, but the superb Man City then came back. And it looked like at the end they were going to pip it and it was going to be a three-all draw, an extra time again. You see, if you watch the events live, as uh, Sky say, it's only live once. But if you know the victory and you know the score as you watch it on rerun, you can watch it at ease. Knowing the final score changes everything because sometimes things look impossible right until the last 90 seconds or so, or interactive time. They think it's all over, and it is now. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
zoom in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and tell us about the significance and importance of the eyewitnesses who were all women. And that's very significant. We're going to look at two verses, Mark chapter 16, verse 6 and verse 7. And I want us to think about three words, three words, one for your mind, one for your heart, one for your life. Here's the first one. A word of challenge, verse 6, for the mind. Verse 6, you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here, says the angel. He has risen. See the place he ought to be. He's not there. Now, you may be new to Christian things. You may be very sceptical. You may think this is very far-fetched. This is crazy. I just want to speak for a few minutes to you. If that's you, and if that describes where you're at this morning, you're most welcome, and I'd love to hear your questions. And the Bible was written to people that have questions big and medium-sized and extra-large. But look at what is said here. You're looking for Jesus, verse 6, but he's not here. He has risen. Go and see where he should be, because he ain't there, said a modern translation that I've just written. Now, there are loads and loads of messianic movements in the first century before Jesus and after his death. There were people who came along and claimed, got a following, who claimed to be the long-awaited king from the Old Testament. But this is what happened with every single movement. They would get a following, but then they would be caught, and then they would be crucified, and then their movement would end as their followers dissipated. And the question that we need to wrestle with if we think the Bible is right or wrong, whether it's true or false is, how come Christianity is different to every other so-called messianic movement in the first century? Why did it not collapse? Well, here's the reason it didn't collapse, because Jesus died. But then he's the only messianic leader who was the leader who he claimed to be, and he died, but he was raised to life again. That's why the movement didn't end. You've got to have a reason why Christianity literally exploded. Here's a map for you. Christianity exploded in the first 200 years and it took over the known world of the Mediterranean Empire. And the question is why? Why did that happen? What made it different? This is what made it different. The leader was killed. He was crucified but he was raised to life again, and that changes everything. Mark wants us to understand the uh, relevance of that. Here's the map. You can see how it grew around the Mediterranean basin, and it literally exploded. And so that now, just as then, it's the majority religion of the whole of the world. And it's still growing, and it's growing fastest where the persecution is strongest. But here's the evidence as we take a step back. There's the map. Why did it explode? How did it explode? Because Jesus died, but then God raised his son from death to life again. But that's such an outrageous claim. Prove it. Mark says, okay, I'll do my best and I will. There are three times that he points our attention to the eyewitnesses who saw the empty tomb, and they were all women, and that's very important, and that's very radical. If you've got your Bible open, you can look at chapter 15, verse 40, chapter 15, verse 47, chapter 16, verse 1. And three times in eight verses, you've got Mark who's writing down, if you want to see evidence for an empty tomb, go and ask the eyewitnesses. 
Go and ask the people who were not told about it. Go and ask the people who went in and saw it. And they were all women and you can trust them. And if you don't believe me, says Mark, go and speak to them. Go and cross-examine them. Go and get a torch and put it in their faces and say, what did you see? When did you go? See if their stories uh, collaborate together or not. Anyone reading this document, go and ask the women. Because they were there and they can be trusted. This is not how legends are written. But it is how history is written. Unless you're Celsus. Now, Celsus is a man, he's um, close to Celsius, so perhaps this made him hot under the collar. Sorry. Um, Celsus was a Greek, he was a pagan philosopher, and he hated Christianity, and everything he wrote was to disprove Christianity. He wrote a number of books, he lived about 80 years after the life and death of Jesus. One of his strongest arguments against Christianity was that it was women who supposedly saw the empty tomb. And he wrote very harsh things about women. He says, we all know that women are hysterical and so can't be trusted. I think that's what's called being un PC. <laughs> but seriously, the only reason that Mark would record that women three times in seven or eight verses went to see the empty tomb was if it actually happened. There's too much at stake, there's too much cultural criticism to say that women saw it and not men, unless it's true. Because culturally, historically, everything was against women being the eyewitnesses, because they couldn't be trusted in that culture. Here's another piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You've got to contend with the women, but you've also got to contend with the fact that People in the first century, were they simple-minded? I mean, no one in their right mind thinks that a resurrection can happen today. But back in the day, you know, 2,000 years ago, they were far less clever to us. That's pre-enlightenment, that's pre-scientific time. They would have believed this sort of stuff without any need for proof or any need of evidence. Well, Mark wants to challenge that too, and this is what Mark says. If you read Mark chapter 8, if you read Mark chapter 10, if you read afresh Mark chapter 16, there are three, four times when Jesus says, I will die, but I will rise. I will die for the sins of the world, but I will be raised to life again. And the fact that Mark, who's so uh, precise with his words, he writes the shortest, punchiest, uh, most uh, concise gospel and so if Mark is recording the fact that Jesus made this promise in chapter 8 chapter 10 chapter 16 that means that Jesus was speaking about it very very frequently you might like to say all the time after he was identified as the Messiah in chapter 8 I'll die and I'll rise on the third day I'll die and I'll be raised on the third day I'll die and I will be raised on the third day and if that's so if that penny dropped into the original hearers who followed Jesus, then surely there would be at least one person who was on their eye calendar and was saying, one day, two day, three day, let's go and check. But there was no one who went to check. No one was expecting this, not one. And that's the very point. It was impossible for them to believe 
and as, as is impossible it was for them to believe, it is as impossible for us to believe. The only thing that persuaded them was that they looked at the evidence. And as they looked at the evidence, they were convinced that Jesus was raised from death to life. They believed the eyewitness testimony of the women who can be trusted. And it changed their lives and it changed the Roman Empire as the gospel exploded. Friends, if you're new to Christianity, if you're sceptical, if you think it's a load of baloney, can I ask you some polite questions? If you say that Christianity is not true, you have to have a reason for these points. How will you explain the fact that so many hundreds of Christians were willing to die for Jesus? How is that possible if this is not true? How is it possible that the church spread the gospel at great personal cost and it took over the Roman Empire as the majority of religion unless Jesus was raised from death to life again? Have you looked at the evidence just as the sceptics did in the first century? Have you listened to the testimony of the women, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? All record the fact that Jesus died and on the third day God raised his son from death to life again. If you disbelieve the Bible, what reason have you got for those things happening? Mark wants to give us a word of challenge for our minds. But then in verse 7, he says the resurrection is also a word of challenge uh, for our minds rather, but in verse 7, a word of grace for our hearts. A word of grace for our hearts. Uh, Look at verse 7. Tell his disciples and Peter, says the angel, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now what did Jesus not say, but what could Jesus have said? Maybe he could have said something like this. You tell those, I've got my finger out. You tell those deserters, you tell those cowards that I might see them. And if they plead and if they grovel for all they've done, then maybe I'll embrace them. They've let me down, they've deserted me, but if they come groveling, maybe I'll forgive them. Nothing like it. Jesus says a word of grace to his disciples who deserted him, who fell asleep on him, and a word of particular grace to a man called Peter. Imagine if the disciples were there, they were gathered round in Galilee, and the message comes to say, uh, just go and get all my disciples from Galilee. And there's Peter having a bit of fish, a bit of bread. Same menu as last time. And uh, they're around a campfire and the message comes to all the disciples. And and Peter must be thinking because of what he did, letting Jesus down three times. Oh, no, 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 that message is for you. It won't be for me because of all I've done. It's not to Jesus. Jesus can't mean me because I've broken his heart. Jesus can't mean me, can't mean me because, because I just deserted him. So he has every right to desert me too. What does verse 7 say? I will see you. I'm going ahead of you. Tell my disciples, tell the disciples and tell Peter. It's a word of particular grace for this man. We think about Peter, think of all he's done because it teaches us a deep truth about the gospel. Because Peter, Peter's betrayal was the greatest His repentance will be the deepest and his grasp of grace will be the greatest, which means he will be the perfect person 
to lead the church in the first century that he did. Do you get that? His betrayal was the biggest, his repentance was the deepest, so his grasp of grace will be the greatest. Rick Warren puts it a bit like this. Perhaps this is a word of grace to you this morning. It's very likely your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest hurt. God never wants you to waste a hurt. That's profoundly biblical. And that's what happened in Peter's life. Go and tell the disciples, I'm coming for them, I love them. And you must tell Peter too, because my heart is for him. It's so contrary to the world. I mean, I mean, the world says, just roll up your sleeves like a Roman soldier. Sun's out, gun's out. You're strong enough, you can save yourself. Here's a poster. We can do it. Now, that's a great example of a strong man or a strong woman who says, we can do this in our own strength. If we're just good enough, if we're faithful enough, if we give enough of our time and money and our resources, then God must be pleased with us and God will owe us. That's how the world understands. If you polish yourself up, you can rescue yourself. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says grace is given and salvation is received. It's not earned. It's not won by you. It's only won by Jesus And when you admit that you cannot save yourself, but you need someone to come into a burning building and rescue you, only then can you be received by God in Christ. That's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus dying for the sins of the world. I mean, here's George Clooney from the film. When a criminal is put in jail and they complete their sentence, fully satisfying the requirements of the law, so that the law's got no claim on them. In Ocean's films, out comes George Clooney. He's done his time. He was a naughty boy again and again, but he does his time and he walks out free. Okay? Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross on Good Friday. It was a huge penalty. We'll never understand how great it was. And he must have satisfied it completely, utterly, fully. Why? Because on Easter Sunday, there was an empty tomb. And the empty tomb shouts over all of history that God was completely satisfied with the sacrificial sac- the sacrifice of his son once and for all, never to be repeated again. It is like a huge neon sign over all of history. I am satisfied. It is finished nothing more to be paid you are not strong enough to save yourself but my grace is strong enough for you go and tell the disciples that I'm coming but also tell Peter I mean can you imagine verse 7 can you imagine how Peter felt as he heard his name picked out (gasps) and am I going to be criticized for what I've done I deserve to be criticized I deserve to be cast out but you want me to come his heart would have leapt wouldn't it It was a word of grace for his heart. And if you take that into your mind, the evidence that you've got to contend with, and if you see the grace that comes from the heart of God in Christ, there's one more word that comes in the shape of two words, actually, from verse 6 and verse 7. It's it's a word of mission. A word for your mind, a word for your heart, and a word of mission. 
Look at verse 6. Don't be alarmed. Look at verse 7. Go and tell the people about the resurrection. Don't be afraid. Go. Don't be afraid. Go. Freedom from the world will lead to freedom for the world. That's the resurrection. Freedom from the world means freedom for the world. I mean, why is life so difficult? Why have the last two years been such a pressure upon us? For many reasons. But it has exposed a lot. And it would be to our great loss if we forget the things that we could have learnt in the past few years. Why is it so hard for me and for you to face suffering? Why is it so hard for you and me to face death? Why is it so hard to face disablement or disease or physical ailments that increase with age perhaps? that keep you from doing what you feel like you ought to be doing or should be doing or everyone else is doing. Why is it so hard? Well, I think one of the reasons is because we think that this world, this broken world, is all there is. And so if we cannot have our best life now, then God isn't there and he certainly doesn't care. We think we've got one life. We think we're going to, all that we have is available from the Amazon cart that we can click on as long as we have the resources we can get the life we deserve delivered to us tomorrow we feel like the money we have in our bank account is the only money money and only riches we'll ever have we think this body is the only body we're ever going to have and so we fear missing out so god gets relegated and all our desires get promoted the doctrine of the resurrection says that's not true someday you'll go to heaven and you will not just get comfort for all the things you don't have here. That's not all you'll get. The doctrine of the resurrection says God is going to renew this world entirely and gloriously. We're going to get back everything that we've lost. Everything that's been tainted by sin in the whole of the cosmos will be renewed in a glorious way. We're going to get the things we never had. And if you think this material world is beautiful and glorious, and it is, can you comprehend how great and glorious the new heavens and the new earth will be? She's on the screen. Some of you may know her or read her books. Johnny Erickson Tarder was 18 when she had an accident. She's a Christian lady. She uh, had a spine, terrible spinal injury and became a quadriplegic. Nothing worked from neck down in her body. She went to church for many years and the church that she attended was quite a high church, like a, a high church of England type church. So when she went in in her wheelchair, there was always a part of the service that she found very difficult. And it's when the, the priest at the front would say, can I invite you all please now to kneel and say this prayer with me? Because every time the priest said that, she couldn't do it. And so she would burst into tears. But one day, one service she decided that she would pray the prayer that uh, was being prayed by the priest. It was all about the resurrection, it was all about the future, and suddenly it hit her. She says in her book this, I suddenly realised that when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees. And I'll kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get onto my feet and then I'm going to dance. Then she says, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone 
who is suffering from a spinal cord injury like me. I mean, can you imagine the hope that this gives someone who's just manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy other than the biblical faith promises us new bodies, not just new minds, not just new hearts. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live now. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's rooted in history, it's certain about the future, and that changes everything in the present. If you can't kneel, or if you can't dance, and you long to dance, in the resurrection you will dance perfectly. If you're lonely, in the resurrection you will love perfectly. If you're empty, in the resurrection you'll be satisfied eternally. If you know that this is not the only world that you'll ever experience, if this is not the only body you'll ever inhabit, this is not the only life you're only ever going to live, then who cares what people say about you now? Because this is not the only life that you will have. You can be brave, you can take risks, you can spend your resources generally as generously as Adrian prayed, because you know that this money does not identify you. You have riches so much greater in the person of Jesus Christ. The resurrection means that you can have poise before a consultant, even through tears. It gives you freedom from the constraints of the world, that death is no longer to be feared. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh grave, is your victory? Jesus Christ has punched a hole right through the fear of death, and that gives us freedom from the world, but it also gives you freedom for the world as we close. The resurrection does not just say, we want to save souls, says God. He says we also want to save bodies. It's not just about spiritual, it's also about physical. Uh, it proves the resurrection that God hates disease. It proves the resurrection that God hates death and hunger, and he must hates poverty too, because the resurrection is physical and real. There was a man called Martin Luther, a very significant man in the history of the church, and he was asked a question hundreds of years ago that said this, Mr. Luther, if you knew that Jesus Christ was going to return tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. I'd plant a tree. Because God is concerned with ordinary things being made extraordinary. He's interested in physical, concrete things, so to speak. He's interested not just in spiritual and ethereal, he's interested in real people and real relationships. So, mountains matter to God. Beauty matters to God. Fresh air matters to God. Hugs, compassion, love, relationships matter to God. Why? The resurrection proves it. It was physical. It was real. And so does tea and coffee. So does red wine and white wine and beer and stout and ale and lager. See what I like? The, you, the resurrection has changed everything because God is not just someone who's interested in spiritual. He's interested in physical and real and lasting. If I knew Jesus Christ was going to come back, I'd plant a tree says Martin Luther, because it's going to be redeemed. And if it's glorious now, just imagine how great and glorious it will be in the future. Friends, God loves us so much that he gave his only son 
to redeem a world and that one day he will make it absolutely perfect. Do you think the resurrection is just a nice symbol for Christians to get warm and fuzzy about one day a year? Or has it shaped your heart, your mind, your life? Every day should be a celebration of living in light of the resurrection. If you think it's just a fuzzy, warm thought for once a year, then how on earth did the early church grow? Did the leaders say, "Um, I've got something to tell you. Let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It didn't really happen, but it's a wonderful symbol. I want you to think about it once a year. It will do you good. So let's be nice to each other. No, the first leaders said, we saw Jesus. We touched Jesus. We heard Jesus. And that proves that this broken world is not all there is. One day, God is going to put everything right. Here's the picture to close. What difference does the resurrection make? The leaders of the early church, and I trust the leaders of the Christian church today, can preach the resurrection with hope and joy and certainty because we speak of a living hope because the resurrection means that Jesus is a living saviour. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, just as he said.